This is the Frankly Daniel Show, and I'm the Daniel under Frankly part of this enterprise. It's my weekly exercise of our First Amendment rights, and it's an honor to be here today with you. So much to cover, so much to say, so let's jump right in. In 1986, Ronald Reagan said the nine most terrifying words in the English language are, I'm from the government and I'm here to help. Well, today's nine most terrifying words are, I'm from the government and I'm here to vaccinate you. Here's an audio clip of Biden's press secretary, Jen Psaki, and Mr. Xavier Becerra, the Secretary of Health and Human Services, talking about the government's knock-knock who's there, door-to-door effort to confront you about your vaccine status. Now remember, tiny tyrant Dr. Fauci has already looked America in the eye, and he's told us to get over our vaccine hesitancy. Like, grow up already. So here's the first clip. We are going to continue to press to get 12 to 18-year-olds vaccinated, to continue to uh, work uh, with communities where there's lower vaccination rates. That's one of the reasons we initiated these um, these, for- these strike forces, to go into communities and work with them to determine what they need. Wow, they've got strike forces coming after us. That should be pretty entertaining. Here's the next clip. Perhaps uh, we should point out that the federal government has had to spend trillions of dollars to try to keep Americans alive during this pandemic. So it is absolutely the government's business. It is taxpayers' business if we have to continue to spend money to try to keep people from contracting COVID and and helping reopen the economy. Knocking on a door has never been against the law. Well, given that I'm currently battling leukemia... I definitely got my two-shot Moderna COVID-19 vaccination. But just just keep that between us. I resent anyone from the government coming to confront me at my home and question me as to whether I've been vaccinated. Personal private health care information should stay exactly that way unless there's some compelling reason to disclose it. And the federal government, in my estimation, doesn't have a compelling reason. Everyone knows the vaccine is available and free to anyone. I won't cooperate if they show up at my front door. But my guess is that our governor, Ron DeSantis, here in Florida, will probably put a stop to this federal intrusion before it gets off the ground here in Florida. Well, I'm from the government and I'm here to help. I'm from the government and I'm here to vaccinate you. These aren't the only nine-word phrases to worry about with our government. Here's two more for you. Today's nine word most terrifying words could be, I'm from the government and I'm your child's CRT instructor or critical race theory instructor. Tomorrow's nine most terrifying words could be, hello, I'm from the government and I'm here for your guns. Do you sense a theme here? (laughs) Well, moving along, I just want to say, I believe that I'm probably eminently qualified. Uh, Qualified for what, you might ask? Well, qualified to talk or argue with liberals and progressives about their emotionally driven arguments. I mean, I declare I might be even more qualified to debate progressives on any among several hot political or ideological topics in today's news. I purposely 
pinned progressives as debating partners because most of these folks, they're not classic liberals, but instead they've sort of morphed into what I'd call neo-socialist or neo-Marxist. And I do see their ideologies and their politics as a serious and incredibly destructive threat to our American way of life. Progressives are attacking our American values with vicious and largely unchallenged lies. They're getting tons of fresh daily propaganda support from our so-called monopolizing far-left media and giant censorship from social media platforms like Google, YouTube, Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Progressives are also gaining vocal support from major woke corporations who have been coerced by Marxist thugs into supporting groups like Black Lives Matter for fear of being harassed or boycotted as super racist companies. Over the last 18 to 24 months, we've all been subjected to the growing tyranny of radical progressives. But perhaps, but perhaps the greatest assault has been inflicted on students, parents, and our parental rights. Here's a for instance. Ibram X. Kendi just said on a TV interview, quote, we live in a dangerously racist society. Let me just flat out ask you if you believe this, and if you do, like, where's the evidence? He's really saying we're living in a dangerously racist society unless we adopt his critical race theory tenets and shame and sort ourselves into either obedient white oppressor class racists who are avowed practitioners of systemic racism and those whites willing to purposely allow blacks to discriminate against us as a means of reparations and toward achieving racial equity. Or... We're members of the black, oppressed class of victims of systemic white privilege and white supremacy, and we're willing to practice discrimination against whites as a means of racial balance, equity, and harmony. Boy, I tell you, that's a mouthful. So how about some boring definitions? Critical race theory, according to the Encyclopedia Britannica, is an intellectual movement and loosely organized framework of legal analysis based on the premise that race is not a natural, biologically grounded feature of physically distinct subgroups of human beings, but instead a socially constructed, in other words, culturally invented, category used to oppress and exploit people of color, particularly blacks. Critical race theorists hold that law and legal institutions in the United States are inherently racist insofar as they function to create and maintain social, economic, and political inequalities between whites and non-whites, especially African Americans. In other words, the basic tenets of CRT, critical race theory, include that racism and disparate racial outcomes are the result of complex, changing, and often subtle social and institutional dynamics rather than explicit and intentional prejudice as part of individuals. Thus, any given white individual may be a racist per se, but they are part of a systemic white perpetuated racism against black people. Oh, my nerves already. So, if by dangerous, Ibram X. Kendi means whites are a discriminating oppressor class, and blacks are an oppressed class of helpless victims, then I agree. We live in a very dangerous uh, society. Uh, this philosophy is just not going to stand, and there's bound to be conflict. In fact, there's already conflict. 
As the old saying goes, you're entitled to your own theories, but not your own victims. But critical race theory, or CRT, is quickly becoming critical rage theory as parents push back against woke school boards across America. To date, parents have successfully petitioned to have 54 school boards recalled across the nation, and there are scores of other recall board member projects and petitions already scheduled. Only 29 boards were recalled in 2020, and there's bound to be triple that amount this year, and even more by spring of 2022. In fact, this year has the potential to be the biggest upheaval in school boards and their memberships across America. And the majority of this upheaval is being driven by progressive black activists and teachers unions who are pushing this neo-Marxist critical race theory agenda on parents, school administrators, students, and school employees. The hot complaint is that many school board members are sympathetic or are outright activists in this progressive agenda, and they court no middle ground on the subject of teaching racial equity as a remedy to what they perceive as long-standing white systemic racism. And the more parents find out about what these school boards have been up to, in their names, by the way, the more involved they become, and the more involved they become, the more heatedly involved they become. And I, for one, don't blame them. Spiritually, I'm right there with them. And when the opportunity uh, comes up, I'll be standing right next to them. This cancerous CRT growth must be arrested and cut out before it infects any more young, impressionable minds. Six school board members of the Loudoun County School Board in Virginia have just been recalled and another election will take place in September over these very issues of critical race theory in the school system student curricula, teachers and staffing's so-called diversity training, and issues surrounding the normalization of transgenderism at county schools, <laughs> of all things. But in general, these last 18 to 24 months have witnessed a massive and often vicious assault on parental and student rights across the country, imposed by rogue county and city school boards and pushed by selected teachers, and their teachers' unions. We now have the Biden administration's Department of Education ready to award grants to schools and school districts participating in critical race theory training and indoctrination. And the only way to stop this cold is at the school board and superintendent levels. So what are these assaults on parents and parental rights I keep talking about? Uh, what bullying have students and parents had to endure these past 16 months? Well, first, parents were told by school boards, local health authorities, and the CDC that schools, and in particular, in-class, in-person learning had to stop, and all instruction had to move to an at-home online Zoom instruction. But not everyone was Zoom or computer savvy, nor did everyone have or own a computer or have broadband high-speed cable connections. Thus, this burden was shifted to parents. Then evidence mounted that children, certainly those under the age of 15, had an infinitesimally small to near zero chance of not only contracting COVID-19, but even a less chance that they'd have any serious health risk from the virus. Now, some schools, mostly private ones, reopened, but most schools didn't. Eventually, even public schools opened, but in many instances, hard resistance from teachers' unions, particularly the union leadership, refused to allow teachers to return to work until they were fully vaccinated. 
And then, even after being fully vaccinated, many of these public schools failed to open until late March or April of this year. The children who did return to in-class and in-person learning remained restricted by six-foot social distancing requirements until the CDC reduced it to three feet, but still they had to perpetually wear these face masks for long eight-hour in-class school days, which remains ridiculous. Many schools even further restricted students' interactions with each other and teachers by encasing students in plexiglass-surrounded single-desk structures that physically separated students, like a little fort, you know, but was later discovered that, that it provided no meaningful protection uh, from what the CDC finally admitted was an aerosolized uh, airborne viral disease, that being COVID-19. So, it, the, you know, the, the aerosol would just go over the plexiglass. The whole thing was ridiculous. Nevertheless, stress placed on parents and students due to unnecessary and protracted school closures you couple that with the contortion parents and students had to adhere to to attend classes clearly disrupted every everybody's concern much of the educational and teaching burden fell on parents especially as teachers union prohibited teachers from returning to classroom for 90% of the academic year of course this pattern was almost exclusively practiced in democrat controlled blue states while red states like Florida and Texas, they had their schools fully opened at the beginning of the fall in 2020. The assault on parental rights continued throughout the pandemic months, regardless of whether students attended in-person classes or were instructed via Zoom. This is where parents first learned, because they had to become fully engaged in their children's lessons plans, that students were being taught race-based critical race theory instruction as part of their child's curriculum. Any parent or grandparent who participated in America's elementary, middle, or high school COVID-19 pandemic as home educators certainly are aware of the hassle, trauma, and anxiety associated with school instruction, much less the great American educational race-focused bombshell predicated on CRT. Especially now, in hindsight, all schools should have opened far sooner and with much less health protective gear and regimentation. Unfortunately, while there was both real-time and foresight information that would have led to much sooner, fuller, and just as safe school openings, teachers' unions and school board politics, along with overly cautious legal guidance and not health concerns per se, kept schools closed for far too long because much of this class instruction was conducted via home zoom and other online teaching tools parents were by necessity involved in helping their children negotiate and interpret lesson plans and assignments it's there where parents began learning about the progressive neo-marxist indoctrination lessons and plans students were receiving based on critical race theory the reality of these newly injected lessons about race not history, but racial discrimination, and the other roles white people allegedly play in today's systemic racism against black students, well, it was learning about these lessons that caught the immediate attention of parents. 
This happened concurrent to parents' complaints directed at school boards for unscientific mandates that their children, especially their youngest children, were being forced to wear face masks for up to eight hours each school day. Many schools, particularly in Democrat-controlled blue states, still maintain the face mask mandates and plan on keeping these mandates this coming fall. But now parents are confronted with another assault on their parental rights, that being mandatory COVID-19 vaccination as a condition to their child's return to school this fall. Now these COVID vaccines are still emergency use only vaccines. And given the current case numbers among young adults and children, there's absolutely no emergency that justifies childhood vaccination for COVID-19. Additionally, there's a growing and dangerous list of side effects resulting from childhood COVID-19 vaccinations, making the WHO recommend that children 18 years and younger wait until the vaccine is fully FDA approved. Now, interestingly, the Wall Street Journal reported July 8 that children are at extremely slim risk of dying from COVID-19. According to some of the most comprehensive studies to date, the threat of problems arising from COVID for children might be even lower than previously thought. Some 99.995% of nearly 470,000 children in England who were infected during the year of 2020 and examined by researchers survived. Now a survival rate of 9995 out of such a large group, 470,000 children, you couldn't even say that of car accidents in a given year for children. In fact, there were fewer deaths among children due to the virus than anyone initially suspected. Among the 61 child deaths linked to a positive COVID-19 test in England, 25 were actually caused by the illness in this particular study. In other words, the rest of them were false positives. You may be interested to know that British children under the age of 18 years of age are not allowed to receive any of the various COVID-19 vaccines due to these vaccines' emergency use only status and the growing list of serious side effects witnessed in the USA from vaccinations in the 12 to 18 year old age category. Yet nearly all our colleges and universities are mandating proof of COVID-19 vaccinations in order for students to matriculate this fall. And as the August start date for most of the nation's elementary, middle, and high schools is near, we're already seeing school boards, pushed by the teachers' unions, mandate student vaccinations before the start of fall matriculation. And given the low incidence of childhood and adolescent COVID infections, and the near zero side effects and even smaller chance of death from COVID infections, these mandates are likely to see a boatload of lawsuits and a lot of angst in schools. So, parents are dealing with all these COVID-related issues while racing to become fully informed about their child's school going rogue-woke enforcing the tenets of critical race theory to be taught to each and every student without exception. These are the heart of the reasons why parents have organized and hired firms to assist them in suing their school boards, their superintendents, and petitionings for school board member recall elections. But I digress. I will return to these subjects. But allow me to return to the topic of why I think my background 
has in many respects prepared me to speak up and out about many of the subjects and issues progressives are foisting out upon us. After all, the angst parents and students are experiencing has been perpetuated by the left and, to be more specific, the radical progressives in the Democratic Party. Now, some conservative commentators and authors like Mark Levin have gone to calling these radical progressives neo-Marxist. In fact, his term for them is American Marxist, which is also the title of his new book to be released July 13th. American Marxist is currently the number one book on Amazon, despite being in the pre-order category. And I'm very much looking forward to my Amazon Prime delivered hard copy very soon. These American Marxists fall somewhere along a continuum from neo-socialist to neo-Marxist. In any event, they're a relatively new breed of leftists in Congress, and they're particularly dangerous and remarkably effective on many fronts. For, for, for the most part, we only get glimpses of where these elected, yet less vocal Democrats stand, and their true colors often only emerge when there's sort of a specific topic like including CRT and school curricula comes up. Nevertheless, very few actual neo-socialists or neo-Marxists will come right out and tell you that they're socialist or Marxist. Uh, yes, we know about Bernie Sanders and Pocahontas Elizabeth Warren and the squad and wannabe squad people like Cory Bush, who represents St. Louis and, by the way, still complains that Michael Brown was murdered in Ferguson, Missouri, by police because he was a black man. But it is the so-called progressives in the Democratic Party where all the controversial action and the power is today. Their small numbers growing larger every day, and liberals are quickly deciding where the energy in the party is and where they best position themselves to win re-election. Progressives have raised quite a large money war chest, and they've promised to primary any Democrat who doesn't go along with key parts of their agenda. Now, despite their small numbers, progressives clearly control the Democratic Party, and it's their progressive agenda that matters. Progressives are willing to put all the political clout on the line, and frankly, the so-called liberal Democrats just don't have the nerve to challenge them. Nor have many elected Republicans stood up and taken loud issue with what progressives are pushing in Congress. We're all aware of the ones who are and continue to speak out loudly against the crazy left. This includes senators like Tom Cotton, Josh Hawley, Rick Scott, and Ted Cruz in the Senate. We all agree, or most of us do, that Joe Biden isn't really in charge of the White House. A recent national poll estimated that only 39% of registered voters believe Joe is in control of his presidency. Now, we know it's not Kamala, so I'm willing to assume that it's the neo-socialist and neo-Marxist who were part of the deep state, along with those from the former Obama White House, who are really running the show. If you've noticed, Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer cower before progressives' red-hot glare, and you can find these two doing and saying things so outrageous that you can only assume that they're under some kind of immense personal or political threat, or they've been indoctrinated into the cult of progressivism. It's really a bit confusing, but terribly disappointing. But back to my qualifications to enter the ring against progressive policies and ideologies. Now, my qualifications begin with my family. 
Diversity of thought is the key currency in my family. Unfortunately, instead of a long line of schooled conservatives in my immediate and extended family, more of them lean left or liberal. Now, despite this, I am fortunate that most of them are thoughtful liberals and not screaming banshees. Frankly, I have yet to meet anyone who is the luxury where all or most of their closest relatives and family are conservatives. In fact, most conservatives I know are bona fide minorities in their families. Well, leaving family aside, I point to my long work and life history living in hostile Democrat Party strongholds. While I grew up in Barry Goldwater's Arizona and graduated from the University of Arizona, I eventually went to graduate school at the University of Chicago's hospitals and clinics. Now, I love Chicago, but Chicago has changed from being the windy city into the murder capital of America. Instead of the wind coming off of Lake Michigan, all the wind is from flying bullets and rushing gang members. As an aside for my younger audience, Barry Goldwater was a long-standing Republican conservative senator from Arizona. He was also the Republican candidate for president in 1964 against Lyndon Bain Johnson. Now, we all know how that went. Lyndon Johnson was responsible for our extremely expensive Great Society and for the outcome of the Vietnam War. The only good news that came out of Johnson's administration was that he arm-twisted his fellow Southern senators and passed landmark civil rights and voting rights legislation in 1964 and 1965. This legislation that crushed the Jim Crow practices of Southern states has advanced a multitude of meaningful and necessary state civil rights legislation and many, many court decisions. Well, after Chicago, I lived and worked in Baltimore for six years, and then I went to Philadelphia for four years. Next, I worked in Northern Virginia and Washington, D.C. for four years. In the capital off, I lived and worked in Boston for 15 years. That included 10 years at Harvard. As an openly cheerful conservative, even I'm surprised that I lived through all those years in hostile Democrat territory. It's quite a combat record, if I say so myself. Of course, things have changed. They've drastically changed. I mean, in the strongest terms, life and politics in those cities have changed beyond drastically. I'm convinced that I could not survive as an open, above-ground conservative in any of those cities today. I couldn't even survive today at my beloved Harvard University. So while I cry about my lost opportunities in all these hostile cities, let's take a break. And when you come back, we'll get to the next 30 minutes of this program. Where That's where all of the action always is. I just got, just got warmed up this first, first part of the thing. So come on back, and I'll be here. Trouble getting to sleep and staying asleep can be infuriating. Your mind races. You toss and turn, and the harder you try, the harder it is to drift off. And today's digital age makes it even harder. You're not alone with this struggle. Poor sleep affects over 70% of Americans. Even the Centers for Disease Control label insufficient sleep a public health epidemic. To take back your sleep, Healthy Cell has created REM Sleep, the only sleep supplement made to support all four stages of human sleep with calming herbs, amino acids, and sleep hormone support delivered in a patent-pending, pill-free, ultra-absorption microgel formula that tastes great. Fall asleep, stay asleep, sleep deeply, and wake up refreshed 
with Healthy Cell's REM sleep. Go to HealthyCell.com and use code OUTLOUD for 20% off your first order. That's HealthyCell.com, H-E-A-L-T-H-Y-C-E-L-L, and use code OUTLOUD for 20% off. Oh, there was a time when Americans could rely on the fourth estate. Well, in these challenging times, the media is both reckless and complicit. AmericaOutloud.com. Top analysis from leading experts, articles, podcasts, video, and 24-7 talk radio. America Out Loud Talk Radio. Liberty and justice for all. Greetings and hallucinations, and welcome back to the Frankly Daniels Show. Before we left for the break, I was talking about my undercover time as a conservative in Chicago, Washington, Baltimore, Philadelphia, and Boston, which are truly incredibly hostile, anti-Republican, anti-conservative environments. Wearing a MAGA hat in any one of these cities is an open invitation to suicide by a radical or a stray bullet from a gang member's handgun. No thanks. I have plenty of conservative battle ribbons, and I'm not signing up for any more tours of politically hazardous duty. So what did I learn while spending all those life years in hostile Democrat stronghold territories? Well, I know it's plain stupid to get involved in a verbal back-and-forth battle with a progressive who is emotionally invested in any given ideological or political topic. Uh, why, you ask? Because regardless of your facts, your logic, and your down-to-earth examples, you can't prevail in a battle of words with someone who is loaded with emotional platitudes, slogans, circular phrases and definitions, and a quiver full of racially poisoned arrows. For instance, take the issue of unfettered and out-of-control illegal immigration on our southern border. A progressive begins that debate with a four-by-six-foot blown-up photo of a young, harried Hispanic mother stringing along two small children and carrying a swaddling infant in her arms as she crosses, unaided, the swollen, swirling, rushing Rio Grande River in an effort to make it to the promised land. For my part, me, I want to know who did the promising and why am I being taxed to pay for these promises? I know, it sounds like Ebenezer Scrooge, right? Heck, even I think so. Well, like an early mid-level chess player who can't find anyone to play unemotional, fact-based chess with, I find myself with few who want to debate the topics of the day. No, this says nothing about how good I am, but it does speak volumes about how many of us don't mentally challenge our own beliefs and ideas and opinions on any of the several critical topics in front of us today. For instance, what are your thoughts and what's your knowledge about police defunding, or rising property and violent crime rates? How about school-mandated COVID-19 vaccination of our children? What about critical race theory taught in our elementary, middle, and even high schools? What about out-of-control immigration? How about escalating narcotic smuggling? Let's talk about uh, increasing human trafficking and prostitution, child pornography, troop withdrawal from Afghanistan, questionable future support for our ally Israel, Possible Supreme Court packing, abolishing the Senate filibuster, woke culture and cancel culture, 
new state voter integrity laws? How about the Department of Justice suing Georgia over its new voter laws? Uh, what about Trump's lawsuit against Google, Twitter, Facebook over First Amendment rights? I think that's an awesome thing. How about Biden's war against the Second Amendment? Oh, this will get you transgenderism being normalized in our elementary, middle, and high schools. Uh, let's talk about government spending. After all, we're $33 trillion in debt. What about renaming uh, affirmative action uh, and calling it positive discrimination, which is basically the same. It's discrimination in favor of black people over white people in school admissions, work positions, employment, government grants, and so on and so on. So back to what qualifies me to have these arguments, even with myself. Well, being retired helps. I have a lot of extra time on my hands to study these topics. But let me ask you, have you ever sat down, closed your eyes, and tried to argue these issues in your own mind? I know everybody doesn't have have a lot of time. And besides, this, this can't really be that much fun, and it, it sounds pretty boring. Like with all such things, we know we'll probably never be confronted uh, with these issues by anyone, so it's just easier to dismiss the exercise. Although there's that son or daughter-in-law that you probably have been meaning to have a particular talk with about some of these topics. But recently I asked myself, why do I believe what I believe and could I defend what I believe and why I believe it? What facts do I have to back up my opinion about any given political or ideological issue? And what am I really trying to prove? I mean, like, well, it's like, who cares? I know. It's not like I'm going to be put on the spot to answer some nationwide pressing problem. Uh, how would I even go about starting such a conversation with myself? Uh, uh, hypothetically, of course. If I told my wife I was going to take an extra hour to explore what I believe and why, I know she'd be checking to see if she had uh, the 911 and our life insurance agent on the super speed dial. I promise. You can't hurt yourself doing these mental exercises. But seriously... If I got asked my opinion about one of these topics, what would I say or would I find a way to dodge the question with something funny or silly? I deflect with humor all the time. Trust me, if you do it enough, eventually you get better at it. I'm still practicing, trust me. I often subscribe to, to the Abe Lincoln maxim, it's better to keep your mouth shut and let them think you're an idiot than open it and prove them right. But in all seriousness, it's why I decided to take uh, the show on, the Frankly Daniels show, that is. I came to realize that the people arguing on the opposite side of what I believe and cherish aren't only trying their darndest to win these arguments, but they're trying to change the nation and make their opinions, their politics, and their ideology the law of the land. So I invite you to play along with me today or any day as I argue out loud with myself here on the show, or shortly thereafter. I hope something I've covered will pique your curiosity, and you'll pursue perhaps a more complete description to, or, or an answer that I didn't really give here on the Frankly Daniels Show. You can always drop me a note, by the way, on my show section of the AmericaOutloud.com website. Or drop me a direct message on Twitter. You can find me there at DFB Harvard, Daniel Francis Baranowski, D. FB, Harvard, all one word, and I'll, I'll be happy to answer you. When I began reading about critical race theory, I began wondering about all the circular definitions used to talk about racism. I mean, for instance, Ibram X. Kendi, unquestionably the authority on critical race theory, wrote that, uh, quote, 
Racial discrimination is the sole cause of racial disparities in this country and in the world. Now, this seems to me like a cop-out. I mean, where's the evidence? So he's saying that racial disparities cause racial discrimination and or racial discrimination causes racial disparities. So is he saying nothing else factors in? Interesting. Provable? Perhaps. Perhaps not. At first blush, this statement may seem logical to you, but it ignores a host of other extremely uh, critical variables that lead to major differences between people of different races and outcomes. For instance, we know that if you control for family structure, all people, regardless of race, coming from strong nuclear families, they fare better in academic and work performance. We also know that family income, even enhanced family income from two working parents in a nuclear family, also have children who perform better scholastically and in their future employment. Let's take a moment and explore a racial disparity that's been caused by racial discrimination, but it's not the disparity or the discrimination that you'd expect. Asian Americans are petitioning the Supreme Court to hear their landmark lawsuit against Harvard University on their charge of racial discrimination against Asian Americans in Harvard's admission standards in favor of blacks. Of course, Asian Americans are by definition a minority. They belong to a protected minority and obviously they meet the definition of people of color. But in America, not all minorities are equal. This despite the progressive call for racial equity or equal outcomes for all Americans especially black Americans. In short, Asian American students have demonstrated they score hundreds of points higher on their SAT tests, both verbal and mathematics, than black students, and they have higher scores on other objective Harvard admission criteria, but they're passed over in admission in favor of black students. Now, Harvard claims they have too many overqualified Asian American candidates and they're forced to balance their student body with less qualified racial and ethnic students. Uh, To my knowledge, black students are the only category of students given this break. Why? Why in 2021 are we still playing this game of racial catch-up? I mean, why after 30 or 40 years of special carve-outs and extra points for blacks are we now coming back and telling white Americans and Asian Americans they, have, they haven't been able to succeed despite all the extra benefits and line-cutting breaks because they've just discovered that white America has used its white supremacy to institutionalize largely invisible white privilege racism. This despite many first-generation Asian Americans who have overcome English as a second language and they're thriving. Something doesn't add up. They've been able to succeed at professional sports and entertainment, that is, blacks, but not academically or in the routine workplace without some kind of special care or leg up. Now, I think we should probably have uh, racial equity for sports. I'd be in favor that the country is 67% white, but professional NBA teams usually have at best one, maybe two, white players on the team. Now, why is that? It's uh, because athletic skills and abilities win the day. 
No one would ever suggest that the NFL or the NBA or the Major League Baseball has to field a racially diverse team according to the racial makeup of America. That would be ridiculous. Why do we still have to sully our meritocratic scholastic system and even our routine workplaces with special benefits for one race or one category of people? Here's a companion story packed with racial irony. I saw the same type of admissions discrimination play out some 22 years ago at Harvard and at the famous Boston Latin Exam School, which sits just across the street from Harvard University School of Public Health, where I was. I'll save the Harvard story for later, but here's the Boston Latin story, and it's, it's a humdinger. Boston has three meritocratic exam schools, Boston Latin being the most famous one of them. Boston Latin is the oldest continuous operating high school in the nation. It was founded April 23 of 1635. Luminaries like Ben Franklin, John Hancock, Samuel Adams, Robert Treat Payne, all signers of the Declaration of Independence, and even Ralph Waldo Emerson were schooled at Boston Latin. Today, all three exam schools are a combination of middle and high school, but there's an additional admission period for first-year high school students. Applicants from all over the city take an exam, an application exam called the PSAT, which is a grade appropriate scholastic aptitude test. Well, I was in Boston and for years prior, black and Hispanic applicants were considered scholastically disadvantaged, allegedly because it was assumed that black and Hispanic students under achievement in middle school was due to their poor socioeconomic disadvantage in home life. Now, th this premise was never checked against actual backgrounds of each student. Nonetheless, there were always Asians and white students who came from the same uh, socioeconomically challenged homes as black and Hispanics, but they were never given any extra admission credit for their circumstances. Nevertheless, the city's Board of Education gave black students extra points on their applications that placed them higher on the acceptance list than other white or Asian students who didn't receive the extra credit. The outcome was obvious. Higher scoring white and Asian students were bumped for lower achieving and lower scoring black students and at times Hispanic students. Because of Boston's court clashes through the years with issues of desegregation and busing, this special black student adjustment system was grudgingly tolerated until it wasn't. Boston Latin turned down a white girl's application for admission to Boston Latin, despite the fact that she scored higher than black applicants. Here's another rich piece of irony. Her father was a dyed-in-the-wool Democrat and a white civil rights attorney. He decided to challenge the system and filed a federal discrimination lawsuit. In September of 1995, Michael McLaughlin sued on behalf of his daughter Julia, arguing that Boston Latin's policy for admission was unconstitutional. Well, he won and his daughter was admitted. The Board of Education reworked their admission criteria, but this was challenged again in 1997, and here's what the New York Times reported November 20, 1998. In the first federal appeals court ruling on affirmative action in public school admissions, 
a three-judge panel in Boston yesterday struck down racial preferences at Boston Latin School, the city's most prestigious public high school. The challenge to Boston Latin, brought by Henry Robert Westman, the father of a white student who was not admitted, moves the highly charged debate over affirmative action in education from college and professional school level down to the public school systems. But the constitutionality of racial preferences in admissions to prestigious public high schools is more complicated since so many districts, like Boston, spent years under court order to desegregate. Hundreds of districts remain under court order today, many of them creating magnet schools specifically for integration. Now, you have to remember, this was in 1998. Boston, Boston Latin's admission criteria are still under fire today in 2021. Two Hispanic school board members resigned just months ago over white parents' complaints about favoritisms for black and Hispanic applicants. For the coming fall entrance year, the school board has decided uh, to take a break from all the the, uh, hullabaloo and to select the best applicants by zip code, (laughs) avoiding any obvious racial discrimination. Uh, It's a crazy way to go about it, I think. Nevertheless, there are still a lot of unhappy parents, and the school board is faced with replacing the school board members that just resigned and rewriting admission uh, criteria that's going to pass a federal court muster for the incoming class in 2022. Now, the details of this uproar, and there there are more lawsuits that were involved, would take an entire couple of hours, which I may do in the future. Uh, But I wish to qualify my story and say that although I was present and involved with graduate admissions criteria at Harvard and fully aware and present in Boston for all the activities and lawsuits at Boston Latin. Most of what I'm reporting is largely from memory. I believe it to be accurate, but you can Google the details of the Boston Latin story. It's all there on the web, believe me. Nevertheless, these circumstances highlight the conflict over issues of racial equity or equal outcomes regardless of proven achievement. Because of race, you're just given the same rewarded outcome as someone who actually earned the reward. And activists are telling black students they deserve these rewards because of past transgressions by white Americans against their ancestors. Listen, I'm of Polish descent. The Poles have suffered centuries of oppression and violence, the most recent by the Germans in World War II and the Russians right up until the collapse of the Soviet Union. Despite my ancestry, I have never suffered from any of these past sins by other nationalities. Should I expect to be compensated in some manner for the barbarism experienced by my ancestors? My answer is a resounding no. Yes, I'm a member of the dominant white race in America. I have had an equal opportunity under the law to thrive in today's America. That is, unless I'm up for a position against a black person. Then I'm told the field isn't level. I could win, but because of a progressive past legislation, to make racial equity the law of the land, I could lose for something I have had or never had had any control over. I didn't pre-select being white or male or of Polish descent or any other physical or biological attribute. But none of these factors should matter because I'm equal before the law. Or 
I was and now I'm no longer equal under the law. My family's American history didn't start until the late 1920s. My family settled as farmers in Minnesota. All of this, all that students ever wanted from Harvard or Boston Latin was equality of opportunity to be admitted based on merit. Neither did Asian Americans have anything to do with the claimed systemic racism that critical race theory is peddling. Well, back to the story. Of course, all the black Boston Latin students graduated. But then the next stage of advantage equity played out as they all applied for college. Graduating black students from Boston Latin were highly prized recruits at most Ivy League colleges and universities. This included full scholarships to Harvard, Yale, Princeton, and other Ivy schools, despite graduating behind and sometimes far behind other white and Asian students who were not accepted at the same colleges. Believe me, this cycle of black advantage repeats itself in graduate school and eventually in the workplace. As demonstrated by the two white families who sued to see their daughters rightfully admitted to Boston Latin, everyone is willing to give an opportunity to an allegedly disadvantaged black student up until that position is discriminatorily taken away from their child. It's like running a mile race and finishing first by a hundred yards to be told that some runner was awarded a 101-yard advanced placement because of their skin color. You trained hard, you put in the work, and you ran the race, and you won, but you really lost. Yet despite this equity push through the years, we're still fiddling around with race-based discriminations in school and workplace. But the difference today is that we're being pummeled and and shamed as born-again racists by progressive activists telling us that we're systemic racists and systemic racial oppressors of blacks. Instead of truly being a meritocratic, race-blind society, we're being lectured that the only solution to someone else's definition of discrimination is self-imposed anti-white discrimination. And, of all things, Asian Americans who were equally discriminated against as white applicants at Boston Latin, they're still fighting for their merit-based rights to admission to our most elite universities. Ain't reverse discrimination grand. Can you really believe we've become more racist in the last 5, 10, or even 20 years? Does this match or correlate with your own personal experience? It sure doesn't mine, and as a social scientist and a student of human behavior, I, I just haven't witnessed it on a, either a personal or a societal level. But be alerted, there is an all-out push by black activists to lower academic standards in our high schools so that blacks can compete. Honors math courses are being eliminated in high schools because black students can't do the math, and therefore it's been declared a racist subject for high schoolers. Again, we lower expectations in the new approach. This is the new approach to racial equity. We no longer give extra points to black. Instead, now we're taking points away from whites, and everyone is made whole somehow. But I contend instead of whole, W-H-O-L-E, we're leaving a gaping H-O-L-E in the whole process. Many progressives will argue that standardized tests like the ACT and the SAT are racist because these tests are designed by white people and they don't measure academic ability or comprehension of black students. In fact, black activists are lobbying for the ACT and SAT exams to be eliminated 
because they're racially biased in favor of white and Asian students. Washington State is moving to eliminate the lawyer state bar exam because such exams are allegedly racially biased. What's next? Your surgeon or medical physician didn't need to take the racist state medical licensure exam? Talk about informed consent. File this under things you must find out before agreeing to them. This corruption of our education and employment systems has been called the soft bigotry of low expectations. All this in the name of someone's fantasy of systemic racism in every aspect, in every corner, and every hall of American white society. We're being led to believe the American Civil War just ended a few years ago and we're in the early phases of civil rights reconstruction. Heck, even Joe Biden drags out Jim Crow out of the tomb of the unknown racist and shoves him in our face every other week. They call these special breaks given to blacks only as examples of positive discrimination or equity for blacks. It's discrimination and reparations for discrimination as a means of achieving a new evil entity called equity. I I know the Bible says an eye for an eye, but does anyone really think this is a sound approach to alleged, and I emphasize alleged, racial discrimination? Besides, you're welcome to ask whose eye have you poked to deserve such an unwarranted bill for reparations. You're also welcome to ask why your child should have to pay a hit to their personal self-esteem as a human being by being labeled by some race-baiting idiot as a member of the oppressor class of white supremacy. What hogwash. I take it back. It's not even fit to be hogwash. Why are we still freely submitting to this thievery, this elaborate scam? Why are we allowing grifters like Ibram X. Candy to push their false narratives dressed as valid theories of American social disorders? You know, Ibram X. Candy isn't even his real name. He was born Ibram Henry Rogers, but changed his name in adulthood. And what are teachers' unions doing to our school curricula? This week, the American Federation of Teachers, the second largest teachers' union, has come out in total support of critical race theory and has vowed to devote funds and legal services in support of every school district's adoption of critical race theory. The president of ATF, Randy Wingarden, said, These are their children, and they will fight for them so that they can learn about the evils of slavery and racial disadvantage. Excuse me, but our children don't belong to any neo-Marxist union leader or any teacher who is a valued but hired employee contracted to teach reading, writing, math, and civics. No child should ever be told that whites constructed an America where only whites succeed, where they and their white unsuspecting racist parents have rigged the system and that they are a member of an oppressor class that makes their black schoolmates victims of white advantage, white privilege, and white supremacy. I don't care if all teachers are Lutherans. I don't want any teachers union fighting for the right of teachers to indoctrinate my children with Lutheranism or any other ism. I don't care if they're passionately committed to it or not. My child is not going to be told they must become a Lutheran, a Catholic, a Mormon, a Democrat, or a progressive cult member of the Critical Race Theory Student Club. Besides, we have other problems that dwarf any alleged benefits of following critical race experimentation. Well, I've huffed and puffed and blown our hour away. Alas, our time has come to an end. So much more to come next week. So much more to say. 
Lord willing, I will return. I regret I have only one life to give to my fellow conservatives, and I regret we only had one hour to give to this topic today. I hope you found today's cracks in critical race theory informative. Please follow me on Twitter. I do follow back. Find me at DFB Harvard. I can't possibly thank you enough. You were marvelous and so patient again with me today. Let's do talk therapy again next week. Same place, same time. Until then, cheers and blessings. Thank you.